0: Tonight, the existence of God. The problem that we face when we talk about the existence of God is that it is somewhat of an insult to the divinity to have to begin to discuss his existence. Uh, in fact, I think it was Soren Kikagor, the great theologian-philosopher, who said that it is extremely dangerous to discuss in the presence of God his existence, simply because he takes an extremely dim view of it as recorded in Holy Scripture. However, be that as it may, we are forced to the position simply because uh, on college and university campuses in a world which is anything but friendly to Christianity or theism in particular and hostile by every conceivable standard it is necessary for the Christian Church to proceed to give answers. Now by answers we do not mean final solutions to all the problems which confront us simply because There is a marked inaccessibility to data, and therefore one who is finite by definition is going to have one whale of a hard time trying to reach an infinite being or an infinite conclusion simply because one is limited by virtue of that finitude. And so when we start talking about an infinite being, and that is always what we mean when we speak of God in the Judeo-Christian concept, it boggles the mind, and the Christian sometimes feels it all off. How am I going to communicate this idea? How am I going to tell somebody about uh, a disembodied, ultra-dimensional, infinite being who possesses all characteristics. Of perfection beyond anything that the human mind can conceive of. No wonder the analytical philosophers of our day have turned around and said, well, after all these statements can't really be analyzed. You're really talking about something that is metaphysical, that is beyond the world of time and space, a transcendence, and we can't analyze this. Now quite properly it is impossible to analyze a transcendent being. The only way that man can finally arrive at God is if God chooses to reveal himself. This is the position which scripture gives us. But what we are going to attempt to do is to give some reasonable alternatives for the unbelief of men who claim that there is no such thing as any evidence. That we can't consider any factual data that would lead us in this direction. That so we can't even conceive of a being like this. And therefore, what's the sense of even talking about it? The market is the today in philosophy, with books on the subject, of why you can't even talk about God. The reason you can't talk about Him is because the concept, never mind the being, is irrelevant. Now, if we for a moment suppose that we shall ever convince an unbeliever by any series of propositions, logical thought, or inferences or inductions that the God of the Bible exists, we are deluding ourselves. The ultimate proof, as I said before, is the revelation of God himself in time and space. What we can do is give reasons for faith. What we can do is lay out evidence. What we can do is lead people in the direction but it's impossible by the standards that men have set themselves to prove anything to them at all because they have not ruled God out of existence by really logical processes of thought they have defined him out of existence and I would like to know how any intellect, however brilliant can lick a problem where the definition excludes any possibility of explanation you can't And so the thing that the Christian must do is to come up with reasonable arguments, reasonable evidence, factual data, and provide this information. And then ultimately leave this in the hand of the Spirit of God who must touch the hearts and minds of men. The philosopher has a classic weakness. He is bound inextricably to human reason and logic for the solution of problems without any real consideration of the limitation of human nature because of evil and sin. He therefore concludes that he can arrive at truth, absolute final truth in certain areas, without any real consideration of the problem of sin. And this of course, from a biblical perspective, is impossible and also experientially impossible. So what we will try to do in discussing the existence of God, and even the term is questioned today by philosophers and multiple facets of unbelievers, all we're going to try and do is to look at the evidence. We had a governor in New York State a few years back whose name was Al Smith. He was the first Roman Catholic ever to run for president. And every time he was Challenged by any of the people who wanted to point out something about him and his administration as governor of New York, he would say, Let's look at the record. And then he would proceed to reel off the record of his administration. And that phrase came from American politics into uh, our colloquial vocabulary. Let's look at the record. All you can do with the unbeliever, philosopher, psychologist, psychiatrist, scientist, or just General Joe, is to present facts and evidence. You can never ever, by the standards which have been set up, prove something to it. It's a very interesting book uh, that was released a few years ago and has now gone through 26 editions. It's called Science is a Sacred Cow. It's written by uh, Dr. Anthony Sandon, formerly of Columbia University, a professor in the science department. He dedicated the book to the Long Island Railroad. He said the longer the train was delayed the more chapters I could write. That gives you some idea of his approach to the subject. He began by pointing out that the scientific method so admired by the philosopher who wishes to pour all truth into that mold is really not so reliable after all. And he takes about 10 or 12 chapters to show just why scientific methodology and scientism have become the proverbially religious sacred cow and the philosopher has gone down the primrose path hand in hand with the scientist. What the scientist, says Dr. Standen, does not realize is that the moment he starts to extrapolate from his premises to a conclusion, he is no longer a scientist, he's a philosopher. And the moment the philosopher attempts to go into the world of science and demand that it confirms experientially and empirically everything so that he then can extrapolate a philosophy or an epistemology, a theory of knowledge from it, then he commits empiricide, simply because there is a fantastic gap between philosophy and science that the philosopher doesn't grasp, and says Dr. Stan, neither does the scientist. So, we begin by recognizing that there are sound principles of inductive reasoning. We also recognize analogy as a valid course of study. And, of course, the four formal laws of logic before whom all philosophers bow daily. What we are interested in is finding out whether or not there is a reasonable alternative to the non-existence of God as put forth today in our culture. How is it possible for us to do this? Well, I'd like to begin this way. I'd like to point out that there are standard arguments used for the existence of God. They have very impressive names. The ontological arguments, the cosmological arguments, the teleological arguments, the moral arguments, ad infinitum ad nauseum. And you can go on with all the different forms of them from volume to volume, to volume. In fact, I have a volume with me I brought along just to kick, called The Cosmological Argument, A Spectrum of Opinion. Now, in this one book, and I easily show you 400 more just like it, the philosophers have broken down one argument for discussion. And they are still chasing the argument, and nobody's really settled except the philosopher who says, This is the answer. And then somebody comes along in the next chapter and says, that's not the answer. And somebody comes along in the next chapter and says, they're both wrong, this is the answer. And then, in volume two, they proceed to recapitulate why the other one doesn't have the answer. Now, if I seem hostile to philosophy, I am. And the reason I'm hostile is not sour grapes. I was an A philosophy student. I took my master's degree in philosophy at New York University under Dr. Sidney Hook who gave me all the reasons why I should not believe in God. I learned atheism and emergent naturalism from him. I'm hostile to philosophy for one basic reason. It leaves everybody hanging on a chain out in space. The chain has no beginning and the chain has no end and you're somewhere hung in the middle. The philosopher really doesn't care. He's only interested in the particular link in the chain which is his philosophy. Now if you don't think that's true, simply go and analyze the whole history of philosophy from Anaximander and Anaxagoras all the way through to the present day. And you will find that they all consistently in each school recapitulate and then refute each other. No wonder that Tertullian, the great church father and philosopher, said there will never be, there can never be any agreement between Athens and Jerusalem. Athens is the worship of human reason and Jerusalem, the worship of divine wisdom. You can have no agreement between these two. God inevitably must triumph in his own creation. Otherwise, there's just no sense no purpose, no meaning to anything. And that's where Jean-Paul Sartre leaves us, in no exit. That's where Albert Camus leaves us, in his writing. The utter depravity, the utter darkness, the utter meaninglessness and purposelessness of mankind and nature. And Bertrand Russell, looking back over his life at the age of 92, said, I see only bleakness and darkness. And despair. Why? He began raised in a Christian home and then proceeded to abandon some good sound reasoning, I might add, and come to an agnosticism which left him at the end in utter despair. Now, this does not mean that there is not something good in contemporary philosophy or historic philosophy. It doesn't mean that we can't learn something. It means that we must look at it in the proper perspective of God, and the proper perspective of God is Colossians chapter two. Beware, lest anybody ruin you through philosophy, through empty deceit, and after the rudiments and basic elements of this world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of God in flesh. The marvelous statement. For in him dwells all the fullness, claroma, kai teotetos, all that God can mean in flesh. That is incarnate wisdom. So, we have a very definite position. We make absolutely no apology for it. Christianity begins with summa theologica and summa philosophia. The supreme theology, God, was manifest in the flesh. Tuma Philosophia God has revealed his wisdom to man not that man may love his own mind but the mind and being of God Now, we have a position Please don't go around apologizing for the fact that we're feasts That's what what we are We are We are feasts We believe in the existence of one God and we believe in an eternal disembodied, ultra-dimensional being creator and sustainer of the universe and savior of the world in Jesus Christ we have a very definite position non Christians go to lecture sometimes uh, as sometimes I have the opportunity to do in hostile philosophy departments they have a tendency to go in almost apologetically as if philosophy had refuted Christianity this is utterly absurd philosophy has succeeded magnificently, almost majestically, in refuting itself. And the Christian, therefore, ought to recognize that we have a lot more going for us experientially in terms of purpose and meaning. They're all philosophy combined. After all, the philosophers have never yet erected a hospital, they have never yet built an orphanage. Nobody ever went to Africa, Asia, or out into the wilds of the world and tried to present Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism. Can you imagine discussing with a cannibal with his filed teeth gleaming in the sun why there is no possibility of an exit from life and that man is in utter despair? You'd be in utter despair, all right. you'd be in a pot. The philosophers never go out and really accomplish, I'm talking now experientially, and from the standpoint point of axiology, values can never accomplish these things. They are the gadflies of civilization and the parasites of the church. They live on the criticism of others and of themselves. I always say when I lecture, and sometimes I don't get any laughs, that until I see philosophy produce something concrete in terms of the ethics and morality and betterment of mankind, they are always telling us we should have and should aim for. Until I see it, I'm not about to believe that there's any real value in it except intellectual gymnastics. Now, I have a lot of friends who are philosophers, and they get furious when I talk this way. They invite me to their classes so they can argue with me. And, I might add, it never hurts to stand up, stand up for Jesus in the context of higher education, or anyplace else. It hurts when you don't. So I have prefaced my remarks, and probably prejudiced people who will be listening to me, and the tape which is coming out of this, but I have to declare we do have a position in historic Christianity. We do have a somewhat inborn contempt, historically, for philosophy which leads men away from God and very seldom ever towards him. We love the philosophers. We are quite hostile, frequently, to the conclusions that they come to. And I might add, most of the conclusions are non-secretaries. They do not logically follow. What we have to do is analyze the facts. So, to return to Al Smith, let's look at the record. And let's look at some of the common forms of argumentation for the existence of God. And instead of placing them in the deductive framework, Let's put them in an inductive framework, in, if you will, a scientific methodology. Let's take a form of an argument that a philosopher has to pay attention to. And I'll state some of those. And then analyze them and set them forth as reasonable alternatives. Now we're specifically told in the so-called cosmological speculations. And the word cosmological is a 50-cent word. Don't get thrown by it. It simply means from the facts of the cosmos, the study of the universe. That's all it means. From this particular argument, it is generally stated that since we have a universe in front of us, this is the way Christians generally say this, if we have a universe in front of us, Where did it come from? It must have come from God, because we can't explain it. Now the philosopher loves that, the unbeliever loves that, because then he can lead you off into contingency arguments, into infinite regressions, and by the time you get finished, an hour or two afterwards, you not only won't know what you believe anymore, you won't even know what the question was you asked. Now, if you doubt that, I suggest reading some of the contemporary arguments in uh, some of the books on the subject, and you'll see exactly what I mean. So let's us deal with a good inductive form of the cosmological argument. This, will, this one will stand up inductively, in, in any philosophy department. If anything now exists, then either something must be eternal, or something not eternal must have emerged from nothing. Now you must go through that very carefully because the philosophers and the people who don't believe will analyze every word very carefully, so we must say it again. If anything now exists, and I think we're reasonably sure that that's true, then either something must be eternal or something not eternal must have emerged out of nothing or from nothing. Now, is it more reasonable to believe that something emerged from nothing? Or is it more reasonable to believe that the universe is eternal? Is it more reasonable to believe that the universe is illusory? Or is it more reasonable to believe that the universe is created and therefore finite? Actually, you have about four choices. So we review them. first the universe is itself eternal and is the product of chance well is it true? in physics there is a law called the second law of thermodynamics it still stands it holds that the universe is losing energy by heat heat energy by friction so that right now what is happening is that greater temperatures tend to lesser temperatures and that in the end the consummation of the universe is maximum entropy, which means cold. We have some illustrations of it in our own solar system: Pluto, Uranus, are uh, right now encased in ice. Why? They cool off. The Sun is cooling off. The analysis of the stars, the furthest out, all the way in, including quasars, tell us that we are dealing specifically with cooling. Process. Therefore, we are not living in an eternal universe, because whatever tends to maximum entropy was at one point in time greater than it will be when the maximum entropy arrives. What am I saying? It's getting cold. That's all. Sounds very philosophical and very... Uh, erudite, when it's read and propounded page after page. What does it really mean? We're running out of energy. Now I'm sure you understand what that means. Simply because gasoline will shortly be 50 or 75 cents a gallon. We are in an ecology crisis. We're running out of the resources of energy in our own civilization, and I might add, on Earth. And therefore people are now beginning to consider the problem of energy. Okay? Then use this illustration when you talk to people about an eternal universe how come we're in an energy crisis? and they will say oh well because of... well we're running out of our natural energy resources but we shouldn't be running out of our natural energy resources and the reason why we shouldn't is because the universe is eternal and all things must continue but they're not continuing everything is burning out including this planet now no one has ever yet refuted the second law of thermodynamics And in the book, Dr. Einstein and the Universe, Lincoln Barnett points out that Einstein's basic arguments from his own studies and his own great advances in physics led him to say time and time again, the second law stands. Everything is tending to entropy. Therefore, we are living in a circular, finite universe. And it's running down. And he concluded by saying, quote, God does not play guys with this universe. The laws are working out. Now the philosopher says, there's no such thing as a law. It's a statistical probability. What does that mean? That means that what you think is a law really isn't a law. What it is, is a constant tabulation of the same thing happening all the time. Now, that's marvelously theoretical. But, when it gets into the practical world, it really doesn't work out too well. Because if you drop a brick off a building 100 times, the law of gravity, statistically probable, will cause it to hit the asphalt down below. If you apply this principle to that, it is perfectly feasible that one time you will drop that brick off and it will just hang there. Now the scientist will tell you this in physics lectures because I've heard it. But the fascinating part about it is, no scientist on earth will stand under that building while you drop the brick, Because the statistical tabulation he believes in. And he'll talk about, and the philosopher will, it's not a law, but it's his skull on that pavement. And he's not going to do it. Therefore, you see, the human mind is marvelously diverse in that we talk about these things and project these things as arguments and hide behind them as a defense against the mechanism of God's existence, which is inbred in the soul of man because he said he put it there. But when the real chips are down, nobody stands under the building. Let's face the fact that there are laws and they operate. And Halley's Comet will be back in 1975. You can count on it if it hasn't met something along the way. Because it's coming back in orbit. The universe is predictable. Which, I might add, leads us to our second point. Namely, is the universe an illusion? That's all, you've only got four possibilities. Some philosophers say yes. They're called solipsistic philosophers. Now that's a big word. You know what it really means? A solipsistic philosopher is somebody who says the only reality that exists is reality I perceive in my mind, and that philosopher says, "And really, you can't prove anything. You can't even prove that you exist." Ever heard that argument before? Oh, it's very, very common. Of course, the argument is immediately destroyed by the fact that the solipsist is talking with you, <laughs> and since he wants to maintain his own sanity because they have places for people who think that they're talking to people who aren't there. He has a very weak philosophical argument. The best statement of it was Stacey's argument from Princeton, but even that argument was very, very weak because in the final analysis, a solipsist had great difficulty navigating across the New York City street, particularly the way the taxi drivers drive. If he believes that all reality he alone perceives because it just may run into one of those drivers who doesn't perceive the same reality, namely him. And then you've got a real problem for solipsism, namely your dent. That's really an irremediable problem. Is the universe an illusion? No. Halley's Comet proves it isn't. The prediction of eclipses proves it isn't. Why? Because an illusion exists in the mind of the person suffering from it. But once I can predict and can correlate this prediction from the minds of others observing the same phenomena, I know it's no longer an illusion. It's correlative truth. And it is statistically verifiable. The universe is not an illusion. Oh sure, there are galaxies that burned out millions of years ago. I don't know anything about them. In fact, the nearest galaxy to us is it blew up tomorrow morning the light from that galaxy traveling to us would take two million years to get here at a speed of 186,000 miles per second that's pretty far out that indicates that it's possible for us to be looking up at galaxies and think they're there, but they're not one of the pet arguments of the illusionist very true, it could very well be but in the universe I live in there is predictability and therefore, I can see and I can predict. And there's considerable evidence from the shifts in the red shifts in the spectrum and other scientific facts we don't have time to go into that there's reality way out there on the fringes of the galaxy. So the universe is not eternal because it's running down, as the old statement goes. The universe is certainly not illusory because we can predict. Is, indeed, the universe now something which arose spontaneously out of nothing? And we're back to our basic premise again. If anything now exists, then either something must be eternal, or something not eternal must have emerged from nothing. Alright? It's the first principle of physics that from nothing, nothing derives. So, if you're going to argue for a spontaneous emergence of multiple forms of energy and matter in constant interchange in vast quantities and you are going to say that this emerged from absolute vacuum from nothing you are at the juncture of having to affirm more faith in an irrationality than in the belief of an intelligent being who created the laws that govern what we can observe now If the Christian thinks for a moment, the Christian knows that the average mind is not going to buy the universe out of nothing. Because everybody recognizes the fallacy instantly. From nothing, nothing emerges. Now I know there are philosophers, and this may come as a shock to you, and even astronomers, who have said with a straight face that from nothing, nothing comes is not necessarily true. One of them was Fred Hoyle, who set forth the steady state theory, that the universe was always exchanging energy and converting it from energy to matter and back again. Therefore, the universe was eternal. However, his theory was disproved a few years ago by his own colleagues, and then he wrote another paper. And I read the paper, and it was fascinating, particularly a sentence in it where he said, that the only possible conclusion that we can now come to in astronomy as far as he is concerned is that the entire universe emerged spontaneously from nothing. I read it twice because I wanted to be sure I was reading the right thing and that's exactly what it was, so help me. Now if the Christian says in philosophical discourse that the universe emerged spontaneously out of nothing by a direct act of an other dimensional being We are crazy, irrational and illogical, but the scientists and the philosopher will cooperate together in affirming an even greater absurdity that within this dimension with no evidence whatsoever everything just appeared at 6 a.m. twelve and one quarter billion years ago. I think that requires an enormous amount of faith and scientists and philosophers are not supposed to have any. Remember that, that's a prerequisite. Faith is the substance of what is hoped for, the evidence of the intangible. A scientist proceeds from a particular instance to a general conclusion and validates it inductively by experimentation. It's going to follow scientific method to establish the universe as emerging spontaneously out of nothing. I would like to see the data. And there is none. Therefore it has to be rejected. And finally, the universe was created and is therefore finite it was created by a force transcending it by infinity and a force that we cannot observe in this time space continuum now our philosopher friends come back and say well that force itself could have ceased to exist and the effect of the universe gone on and so you're chasing a phantom you can't find God there well, we're not attempting to find God there. We are attempting to show that the universe is finite and that the cause for its existence is not here. And we are attempting to show that there is no evidence that any cause for this universe disappeared a long time ago. Why? Because there's such a thing as radioactive decay. And the scientists and the philosopher recognize it. He recognizes the fact that radium has a specific half-life and that it inevitably ends up as lead. We have radioactive carbon dating, which tells us the age of fossils, and the scientists look forward by it. We have nuclear fission dating, dating and we have potassium-argon dating, all of which tells us the age of rocks and fossils and other things. Practice accepts it. In accepting it, he is acknowledging that there is a measurement of time, and he ends up with a universe somewhere between four and a half and twelve and a quarter billion years old. And it has absolutely no evidence at all for existence on a scientific basis. Therefore, we are faced with a finite universe running down which had to have an origin greater than itself. There's no reason to suppose that the initial cause just disappeared. And the Christian can now begin to argue what is known as causality. And a lot of people don't like that. Because the moment you talk about causality, the philosopher comes back and says, The minute you talk about cause and effect, you have to start arguing back and back and back and back and back, and even God ends up as an effect. Or perhaps as a cause caused by something else. Another way of stating it. How does a Christian deal with this? Well, a Christian can deal with cosmology by pointing out very simply that the God of biblical theology is the most reasonable option of the four possibilities. We haven't proved God's existence. We have disproved the affirmations of the unbelieving philosopher and scientist that this is the way it was done. And we have arrived at a more reasonable explanation which is perfectly in accord with what we find in Holy Scripture. Therefore, what we are saying is what we believe is more reasonable and more rational and in the end, more scientific and logical than what you believe. Now, on your own grounds, we affirm it. Let's go a step further. Is there such a thing as cause and effect? Yes, there is. And we can see it all about us. Let me state causality in an inductive form. Christians don't generally do it this way, but we ought to because it's a good statement. In causality, if there now does exist a chain of causality, then either it is itself eternal as a chain, or it originated in an eternal potential cause or it originated from nothing I'm restating Thomas Aquinas inductively not deductively what does it boil down to in common everyday language it means that every effect has a cause and if you start regressing from you to your parents and if you start regressing from earth back into the solar system Eventually you end up, the best scientists tell us, with grandmommy and granddaddy hydrogen atoms. Now nobody knows where they came from, but they were there. George Gamow points out in the Big Bang Theory that this gigantic explosion brought the universe into existence. And nobody knows where the atoms came from, but they exploded. And this is what brought the universe to what we see today now let's ask ourselves the question what do you think of a chain that is suspended between earth and moon the chain is not anchored to earth nor is it anchored to moon it's simply a chain and it has no beginning and it has no end it just simply hangs there if you were to see a phenomenon like that through the telescope, I think you'd have to ask yourself a few rational questions. You know, like, I mean, what does it mean? Or further than that, if you wanted to think of it more seriously, why doesn't it connect? Or if you wanted to go back more philosophically, it doesn't have a beginning, it doesn't have an end. All it is is a link of chain hanging there. You begin to reason about that and think about it. I mean, if you're a rational being, I think. And I think what you would have to come up with is that that chain had to have some connection of the links between it. And that the connection that forged those links must also have had some capability to suspend it where it was because you see if I see link after link after link I must come to the conclusion that some intelligent source put the links at least together even if there's no beginning to it or no end I therefore inductively reason from the links to something with some degree of intellect that forged it. This is precisely what St. Thomas was trying to do, only he went about it deductively instead of inductively. And so he left us with a very good argument that a lot of Christians don't use. Here it is. If there now does exist a chain of causality, now we're talking about causes, that's suspended, then either it is itself eternal, it was just always there, as a chain or it originated in an eternal potential cause, or the chain just suddenly at a given point in time and space materialized now let's affirm the argument of reasonableness and of logic let's ask ourselves there is a the chain of causality because we can go back in our own universe to its beginning with hydrogen atoms now it's hanging there where do we go from there? the reasonable thing is to attempt to find out what caused it because we know it's an effect we know that it's running down, we know it's going to be destroyed so we start asking ourselves the question what caused it? not what caused me we trace me and you and the whole universe back to the beginning of the chain what caused this effect? now at this particular juncture we have our choices to make either it was caused by a power which brought it into existence or it was always there we know it wasn't always there because it's disintegrating the universe and the causes which we can observe and the effects so we are led inextricably back to the idea of a cause that brought that all into being at that juncture Bertrand Russell arises on the scene in his book Why I Am Not a Christian how many students have read that book in this room how many Christians here have read the book oh you're missing something you want to read one of the most cogent statements upon belief in print. Why, I'm not a Christian. In there, Russell comes to grips with this argument. What does he say? He says, Granted we come back to the atoms, and granted we come back to what is in effect, why should we say that God, since He is the next step, the Christians affirm, is himself uncaused. It does not logically follow that if we come back to the atoms and then to him, that he cannot be caused by something greater than himself. You know, some Christians look at it and they say, that doesn't make any difference. It makes a lot of difference. Because if you get back to the atoms and back to the creator the philosopher and the unbeliever says what makes you think that what created it wasn't caused and the Christian has no logical defense at that point so you have to use I think a very excellent defense that somehow or other perturbs people who get to this point and maybe you'd like to write it down because whatever perturbs them is worth having around when you need it Let's look at it for a second. Let's assume we get back from grandmommy and granddaddy hydrogen atom to God. All right, we're there. Now we appear in the presence of the deity and we have a philosophical dialogue for the sake of making it very plain and that we can grasp it instantly. Then we say, we have arrived at you, creator, but it does not logically follow sequentially that you yourself are uncaused and the creator would say absolutely accurate perfectly logical and rational I concur then where do you go? because the creator would rejoin however you have arrived at me and I am whether caused or uncaused your creator granted Yes. Good. Why don't you obey me? And at that juncture all philosophy, logic, and rationality disintegrates. Because there is no possible defense against the being who says, whether I'm caused or uncaused, I'm here. And what difference does it make if I have a cause and another God made me, I made you, and you are answerable to me in time and space. Now I'd like to know what you're doing with my son, and with my gospel, and with the revelation that I gave you approximately 2,000 years ago. What is the answer, then, of the philosopher and the unbeliever who has arrived at what he says can be? A deity who has a cause. His only answer can be... Ah. That brings up another point of ethics and of choice and of free will. And the Creator's rejoinder would be, I gave you free will. I made you in my own image. We are now back at me. Where do you go from there? The answer is always going to be no place. It's amazing to see how many Christians, afraid of making God finite, don't use the arguments. I remember the first time I used it in a philosophy discourse, it was a very heated discussion and we were arguing violently about twelve or fifteen of us all budding philosophers sitting around a coffee clutch at NYU and everybody was pounding on contingency and pounding on causality and pounding on the non-necessity of being and pounding on this and pounding on that and generating enormous heat and no light whatsoever as I was listening to it I thought to myself why not try it this way? So I looked into the group of my fellow students and I said, "Hey, let's look at it from a perspective of a theist." Oh everybody, laughed, you know, the, the- theist who pays the attention to the theist." I said, "No, I'm serious for a minute. Give me some objectivity, some philosophical objectivity. Let's assume the argument of infinite regress we are going back, 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 back and we've arrived at the beginning of the cosmos what is it according to the physicists? well, hydrogen atoms, okay? right I said, we're there now and I said, we jump from that to another cause because we admit the universe is in effect okay I said, that cause we call God now we're not saying we're talking about the God of Christianity we're just talking about an intelligent creator alright What's the next question everybody there said not a single soul descended everybody said and they were all brilliant students well obviously that we must regress beyond X that is the God and ask who caused God splendid But let's stop and ask ourselves the question Once we have arrived there What about stopping the clock for a second And having a dialogue with X Everybody said, what do you mean? It's very simple Let's let a theistic X talk to us And the theistic X says Just what I said a few moments ago There wasn't one single person there at the table, nor the professor, that taught us who could come up with a logical argument against it, except to say it and believe it. Which, of course, is no logical argument whatsoever. It's simply an affirmation of one's own inner conviction. Now that's worth thinking about. Very much like the judge in Chicago who was faced with a group of hippies. And this was in the newspaper and they had perpetrated some crimes and so forth, and they shook their fists at the judge and said, man, you haven't got the power from the people. It's contrary to the Constitution. You can't do that to us. We're going to appeal to the Supreme Court. And the judge answered them. He said, that's your prerogative under law. And you're right, I do not have the power of the Supreme Court but I do have the power as the judge sitting in this case to decide on the merits of that case and you who have offered a defense and you have been convicted and therefore I sentence you I have enough power from the people to deal with you let's take the unbeliever back to that point and grant him any infinite regression he wants the god he arrives at has enough power to deal with him the christian will argue of course for an infinite god but he can argue from that and reasonably and rationally at least edgar brightman thought you could and he was a fairly good philosopher even though he had a finite god now i think also and we have to bring this to its proper perspective We also have to look at something else that's very, very important. That is teleology. Now I want you to take your Bibles because this is the supreme argument, I believe, from the Bible and from experience for the existence of God. And the Christian can use this. Obviously we're not going to exhaust all of the things we could do this evening. It usually takes me a full semester on the arguments for the existence of God and the objections of the philosophers and we're never going to get into it. But let's primarily, when I say the philosophers, incidentally, I mean unbelieving philosophers. There are some who are believers. It's a small minority, I assure you. But they are believers. I want to draw your attention to Psalm 94, verse 9. Because this is a biblical argument, and it's sound, it's logical, it'll stand, and we ought to know the form of it. Psalm 94. Verse 9. He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? Now why don't you take that and underline that verse. The planting of the ear and the planting of the eye. The psalmist says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the designer of the ear, he can't hear. The designer of the eye, he can't see. The argument is implicit, right in the structure of the text. Of design, of purpose. Hence the Greek word telos, or finality, the purpose, the design of the whole thing, the teleological argument for the existence of God. Now there are many forms of it, but I think what we can say is this, quote, can we believe that the purpos- purposiveness of our sensory organs can be rationally explained without an intelligent purposer, close quote. That's a good question from a Christian philosopher. Can we believe that the purposiveness of our sensory organs can be rationally explained without an intelligent purposer? Close quote. There are many ways that we can state the argument from teleology. It's used in different places in the Scripture. In Psalm 19, verse 5, we have another occurrence of it. And I'm going to go into some of the philosophers who have made some interesting comments on it and very strongly. In support of theism. Psalm nineteen five. These verses you ought to know because they outline this, which I consider to be the strongest argument. And there are a number of philosophers who have arrived at the same thing. <coughs> the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoicing as a strong man to run his race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit to the ends of it. There is nothing hid from the heat thereof. What are we seeing here? The argument from the design of the heavens. In other words, God designed it. How can you look and see law and purpose without inevitably asking the question, even if you're not trying to prove something, asking the question, is there not a purposer in this beyond what I personally am able to control? Now, we can go further than this. Romans chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul makes reference to this very point, arguing, for the power and universality of God from teleology and again, and he was no mean philosopher himself the argument is found in Romans chapter one the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly perceived understood by the things which have been made even his eternal power and divinity so man stands without excuse what is it that condemns men? that the invisible things of God are seen in the purposes of creation so that man cannot have an excuse now there are a number of people that have objected through the years to the argument from teleology you'll find a disconcerting factor in dealing with unbelieving philosophers and people who attempt to sustain their arguments they have a habit of only quoting what passages out of other philosophers that suits their case and they omit other ones point in question David Hume, the great empirical philosopher brilliant genius of a man who quite properly criticized deductive arguments for the existence of God and laid them to rest and I am with him to the end they should have been laid to rest they simply obscured the facts but Hume is always quoted always in every philosophy course I ever took And I've interviewed literally hundreds of people on this subject, asking them questions to satisfy my own mind. I never heard anybody in any university or college ever quote David Hume positively on teleology or on the fact of God's existence or any evidence that could support it. Never once. He's always quoted as the man who destroyed the arguments for the existence of God. I'd like you to listen to the man who destroyed the arguments for the existence of God from something that's not found in the class notes and in the assigned readings Natural History of Religion David Hume quote the whole frame of nature bespeaks an intelligent author no rational inquirer can after serious reflection suspend his belief a moment with regard to the primary principles of genuine theism and religion close quote this comes as a shocker to a lot of people that think that Hume was trying to destroy it in fact in an interesting dialogue which I took the trouble to bring along so that we might see it in its proper context David Hume, according to the editor of these selections made this statement and I'm quoting now the editor of this series. It may seem strange that the defense of the teleological argument is undertaken in the following by one who apparently had little sympathy with it. However, it only emphasizes Hume's great philosophical ingenuity for he does not shirk the task of putting the argument forcibly. The cause or causes of order in the universe probably bear some remote analogy to human intelligence. And then, listen, The world is one vast machine and is divisible into a network of smaller and yet comparable machines that far outstrip human comprehension. Reasonable men, he says, quoting Hume, are forced to conclude that the source of everything is a superior mind or intelligence, close quote. Now what interested me further was, in reading this particular synthesis of Hume, something here that I think a lot of Christians ought to be aware of, and I'll be happy to supply the references to it. It's found in The Cosmological Argument, The Spectrum of Opinion. The chapter on David Hume, and the editor is Donald Burrill, and the publisher is a double-day publication from New York. I quote now, Consider, anathematize the human eye. Survey its structure and contrivance it's just human now and tell me from your own feeling if the idea of a contriver does not immediately flow in upon you with a force like that of a sensation the most obvious conclusion surely is in favor of design and it requires time, reflection and study to summon up those frivolous though obstruous objections which support unbelief. Who can behold the male and the female of each species, the correspondence of their parts and instincts, their passions, and whole course of life, before and after generation, but must be sensible that the propagation of the species is intended by nature? Millions and millions of such instances present themselves through every part of the universe, and no language can convey a more intelligible, irresistible meaning than the curious adjustment of final cause. Whatever arguments may be urged, an orderly world as well as a coherent, articulate speech will still be received as an incontestable proof of design and intention. And the conclusion, Hume again speaking through Cleanthes, you can trace causes from effects, you can compare the most dense, distant and remote objects, and your greatest errors proceed not from barrenness of thought and invention, but from too luxuriant a fertility, which suppresses your natural good sense by a profusion of unnecessary scruples and objections. And he concludes, The order and arrangement of nature, the curious adjustment of final causes, the plain use and intention of every part and organ, all these bespeak in the clearest language an intelligent cause or author. The heavens and the earth join in the same testimony. The whole chorus of nature raises one hymn to the praises of its creator. And then he says, speaking to the man who is arguing with him, you start abstruse doubts, cavils, and objections. You ask me what is the cause of this cause. I don't know and I don't care. It doesn't concern me. I have found a deity. You notice the point we returned to a moment ago, I have found a deity, and here I stop my inquiry. In other words, if you regress back to the universe and then to its cause, Hume says, I have found the deity. I don't have to go any further beyond that because that deity is sufficient to explain all of the effects in my universe, and that's a reasonable, logical, and rational argument from design. It'll stand up. And it didn't come from a Christian. It came from a deistic empirical philosopher who thought that it had some good common sense behind it. The man who's always quoted the saying that he was opposed to belief in the existence of God. I'm glad we can bury that criticism of Dr. Hume. I'm also glad that probably the greatest of all logicians, John Stuart Mill, was very interested in what Hume had to say. And this is what Dr. Mill ended by saying. You see, the philosophers can, on the existence of God, occasionally give us a tremendous boost. Let's listen to it. He says, the number of instances, now he's talking about the order and the general likeness and composition, and he again cites the human eye. He's going back to Hume. The number of instances is immeasurably greater than is by the principles of inductive logic required for the exclusion of the chance concurrence of independent causes. Translation, the fact of the evidence and the way it's arranged in the purpose of the human eye is far greater than can be explained by chance. What chance creates, chance destroys. It is perfectly possible, theoretically, for the universe to all have come into existence simply by being thrown together from atomic structure and arrived at where we are now, granting you have an eternal universe. But, says this philosopher and others, the possibility of this occurring on the basis of chance does not take into consideration that the same forces which caused it to instantly coalesce will also cause it to instantly disintegrate and from its creation till now we've had twelve and a quarter billion years and the disintegration has not taken place we do not have infinite time we have finite time therefore the argument will stand and I think that Dr. Mill has summed it up beautifully when he says the number of instances is immeasurably greater than is by the principles of inductive logic required to the exclusion of a random or a chance concurrence of independent causes, or speaking technically for the elimination of chance. This I conceive to be, and going on now, we are therefore warranted by the canons of induction in concluding that what brought all these elements together was some common to them all, some cause common to them all. And inasmuch as the elements agree in the single circumstance of conspiring to produce sight, There must be some connection by way of causation between the cause which brought these elements together and the fact of sight. This I conceive to be a legitimate inductive inference and the sum and substance of what induction can do for theism. Close That may not mean a great deal to the average Christian, but that statement by John Stuart Mill, at whose altar almost all philosophers bow as the greatest of logicians, leads us to theism being substantiated by what? Good, solid inference and induction. And it'll stand. This did not again come from a Christian, but from an unbeliever. Now, some people are sitting here saying, it's a lot of heavy stuff. And man, how am I gonna put all this together? Unfortunately well, for you, it's all on a cassette and you can play it over and over and over again. Courtesy of one way library until you thoroughly absorb all of this information, and then you'll be able to use it. But the point is, once you have heard it enough and listened to it enough, then it becomes part of your vocabulary of conversation with the person that has these arguments. And when that happens, you are able to communicate with them. I had a professor who once said, We are always being told that the universe came into existence by chance and is sustained by chance. He said, I'm reminded of the story of the infinite monkey at the infinite typewriter who is pounding out consistently and eventually by the laws of chance he is going to come up with Shakespeare's Hamlet. One day, into this great infinite laboratory rushes the scientist who is controlling the experiment. And he tears off the top page from the typewriter and says, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, we're vindicated. To be or not to be, that is the Geshubachum. You think about it for a moment, it makes a lot of sense. What chance creates, to be or not to be, ends up in Geshubachum. Why? Because there is no purpose and no design. You see the importance of purpose and design. We can argue from the human eye. God said so. And it turns out that God is buttressed in his opinion by no less a logician than John Stuart Mill, which I'm sure impresses all Christians and has impressed God for ages. (laughs) We find out that David Hume, the dean of empiricism, far from standing with the sword and the shield and the meat cleaver, turns around and says, nobody that's got a grain of intelligence can look at nature and not come up with the fact that there is a theistic basis in all this. And that's what he said. And there are just scores and scores and scores of people who are not philosophers who have come to precisely the same conclusion. Now we can go on to Bertrand Russell, but you'd be asleep. We could go on to Ludwig Feuerbach and you couldn't pronounce his name. We could go on to all of the rest of them and see each of the facets of modern unbelief but to conclude the Christian has a pretty sound basis for belief in a cosmological structure and argument there is such a thing as existence and if anything now exists then either something must be eternal or something not eternal must have emerged From nothing. It is more reasonable to believe that something is eternal and the God of biblical theology is the most reasonable option to all of it. There are only four choices you've got and each one of the four choices has been examined and inductively analyzed. Causality is here and if you run into infinite regression then you can always remember that when you get there you can ask the nasty question from the position of that being what have you been doing in my universe and the answer from anybody who wants to really face it is that he's not going to sit still for an argument about where he came from he's instead going to ask for your arguments for what you've done I think that this is a reasonable position if there now does exist a chain of causality then either it is itself eternal as a chain or it is originated in an eternal potential cause or it originated from nothing and finally teleology God said it I planted the ear I planted the eye use your brain look at them think about them and it won't be any great giant intellect to come to the conclusion that there's purpose and reason and a thought in creation the existence of God, demonstrable by scientific means, incredible, can never be done. God will not get into a test tube and change color like litmus paper, Red, yellow, or blue, I'm here. Lucky you. God doesn't do it this way. There are other kinds of proof and good, solid reason that can button. Let's not deify any methodology, and let's not think that what we've gone through with evening is the be-all and the end-all of argumentation. But it is a reasonable, logical alternative to unbelief. And it will give us some sustenance beyond scripture for the reasonableness of the existence of God.